Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio, the show that brings you the world's most intrepid people. I am your host, Todd Schnick, joined today by a gentleman who I uh, just honestly just became aware of in the last few weeks. Uh, I've been been really looking forward to getting him on the show. Uh, Say hello to today's guest. His name is Adam Grant. He is the youngest tenured professor at Wharton and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me, Todd. It's my pleasure. I appreciate uh, you making some time. Adam, before we get into a conversation around this book, take a few seconds and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. Uh, I'm an organizational psychologist by training, so I'm usually the guy who gets called after three or four consultants have been hired and fired. (laughs) Um, I I spend a lot of my time studying work motivation and helping behaviors in organizations and and how can we create workplaces that involve higher quality of life and greater success. So the premise of this book, again, is called Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. Um, is, Is it fair to say that the premise of the book is that we've been looking at success wrong all these years? I think a lot of it depends on what our assumptions were going in. I would say the premise is at least that most of us have been looking at success in a way that's incomplete. Incomplete. Okay. Well, when you were on the Today Show not long ago, they let off the story but showing a film clip of Gordon Gecko, kind of the quintessential bad guy of business, but frankly, someone that a lot of people liked, admired, aspired to, but that's wrong, right? I mean, what, what you're saying is that nice guys can and do finish first. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting perspective. So, you know, as you know, I, uh, I divide the world up into givers, takers, and matchers as three fundamental motives that people bring to their interactions. There's a ton of research evidence on this, and that, you know, the Gordon Geckos are basically the takers who love to get as much as possible from other people, think, you know, greed is good, and, you know, don't want to contribute anything back in return. And I think, you know, if you look at the evidence, sometimes being a taker is the, the shortest and most direct path to success, but in the long run, it's very hard to sustain because there's a second group of people called matchers who believe in a just world and a fair, even balance of give and take, and they're really motivated to punish takers when they see them succeed. But it turns out most people are matchers, which makes it really hard then for takers to thrive in an organization dominated by people who believe in fairness and quid pro quo and tit for tat and reciprocity. So matchers, so you get takers, matchers, and givers. And as you said, the Gordon Geckos of the world are the takers or the Ken Lays of Enron, as you talk about in the book. And then there's the givers, which is what you're saying we should all aspire to, but most of us are matchers. And matchers, just to be sure I'm clear, are people who give and take on, in, on an equal basis. Is that a fair definition? I think, I think that's right. Yeah, that's exactly how I describe a matcher. All right. So how do you do this? I mean, is it simply a matter of shifting your focus to just doing everything and anything you can to lift other people up? I, I think it, it obviously ends up being something that, that people have to tailor to you know, their own lives and situations. In general, I think that you know, a lot of people overlook opportunities for giving that are quite meaningful and manageable at the same time. So one of my favorite characters in the book talks about this idea that he calls the five-minute favor. And he says, look, you, know, you don't have to spend thousands of hours helping people in order to be a little bit more of a giver. Rather, what you should look for are ways to add value to other people's lives that are high benefit to them but low cost to you. So you, know, you might make an introduction between two people who might really enjoy knowing each other. You could share an article. You could go out of your way to thank or recognize somebody whose work has gone unnoticed. 
like by writing, you know, an appreciation letter to their boss. And, you know, his view is that we could probably all incorporate a few more five-minute favors into our days. Well, you know, let me <laughs> – I'm not sure how this will be taken by, by me asking this question. It may sound like a, a taker's uh, question, but, I mean, well, the reason I do this podcast is for me to – do favors for a lot of people. I, I get to help you and promote you and your book and your idea. I get to educate an audience with some thought-provoking ideas to maybe make themselves better. There's obvious benefits to me in that I get a chance to network with, with interesting people such as yourself and, and put out good content. I mean, is, that a, is that a giver's manifestation of, of doing something to, to, to help others? I think so. I mean, I think, I think sharing knowledge and, you know, spreading interesting or useful ideas is, is one of the best ways that we can contribute to other people. And so it certainly falls in that bucket by my count. All right. Well, that's good. Okay. So moving on. Then. So, so how and where else does this idea manifest itself? I and mean, what activities should a leader or a future leader do to be more of a giver? I mean, can you take advantage of this thing in meetings and in collaboration activities and networking? And, and you talk about negotiation. It's just weird to be a giver when you're negotiating. Talk more about some of those, those ideas. Well, you know, I think it, it's obviously hard to be a giver when you're dealing with takers. And a lot of people view negotiation as a setting where they, you know, should claim as much value as possible from their counterparts. You know, I think obviously, you know, one of the, the classic principles of negotiation called integrative negotiation. And the idea is that if, if both sides look for ways to meet each other's interests and help each other, that they could actually expand the pie and create more value. And then each of them would get a larger slice. And I think that that's one of the things that givers often try to do at the bargaining table. So that means, you know, sharing information about your interests, asking questions about the other side, and then, you know, trying to find ways that you can help them out that benefit more, you know, offer more benefit to them than cost to you and vice versa. There are times, of course, when you can't pull this off because the other person, you know, is more in a taker mindset or, you know, there's just not a lot of overlap between your interests. And I think there, you know, you have to be ready to protect yourself, right? So what I try to do personally, you know, after teaching negotiation for the better part of a decade and, and reading a lot of the research, is I walk into a negotiation with the mindset that I'm going to start off as a giver and I'm going to re be ready to protect myself and become a matcher if, you know, if it's warranted. And so I will often start a negotiation by saying, you know, look, my, my view of negotiation is, it works best when we both try to genuinely meet each other's interests and help each other out. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that's how this negotiation will go. If it doesn't, I stand ready to, you know, to be a lot tougher, and I hope it doesn't get there. Okay, understood. Let me ask you this question, Adam. Let's, let's assume that many people listening to this, and frankly most people on the planet, probably aren't naturally givers. Uh, they, they've spent their life watching movies that feature people like Gordon Gecko, and so they're not naturally givers. Can people really change? I mean, honestly, is that possible? Uh, aren't takers always going to be takers? I, I don't think so, actually. You know, I think what I, what I love about the idea of give and take is that these are choices we make in every interaction. So just with the next person you meet, you know, you can ask yourself, am I going to try to help? Am I going to try to get something? Or are we going to make an even trade? And, you know, even, even people who act like takers in many of their relationships have giver moments, right? If you look at how most people interact with their family members and their close friends, you know, it, it would be really odd if your son or daughter asked you for a ride somewhere and you said, well, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, as, as opposed to just, you know, helping out with no strings attached. And, you know, I think that, that because, you know, everybody, even if they're mostly taker, has giver moments, we can ask ourselves, okay, who are the people that they care about helping? 
and how can we build a relationship with them that, that mirrors that one? Or, you know, what are the ways that they really enjoy giving? You know, they're, they're takers who love to feel important, for example, when they are the first ones to know something. And so, you know, how can we create that feeling for them in a way that also allows them to share what they know with others? You know, I think those are the kinds of questions we get asked to nudge takers into more giver moments. So you're saying that it's it's easier than someone might initially think to to have a mindset or behavioral shift. That's right. Okay. You know, I have to assume a, a very common question that you get when you're promoting this idea is that aren't givers ultimately burned? Aren't they ultimately become a doormat or, or do takers begin to say, Ooh, I have the ability to take advantage of this guy because he, because he's a giver. Well, I think that does happen frequently. And I think that's how givers, a lot of givers get themselves into trouble. And, you know, it's, it's, it's as if takers have like a, a giver antenna that says, Oh, you know, here's somebody who's generous. I should pounce. But I also think that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of givers have an advantage they don't put into action as often as they should. So there's some really terrific research on this that I cover in Chapter 7 of Give and Take, which actually shows that givers tend to be better judges of character than takers or matchers. And the reason is that givers habitually trust other people. And, you know, they're always sort of looking for the best in others and assuming that they might have positive intentions. What that allows them to do is see the full range of behavior that other people are capable of. So if you're a giver, you know, you get to some, see some people act like, you know, complete takers. You get to observe other people acting really generously, and you get to observe lots of people in the middle. And that allows you to learn all the shades of gray and see, you know, sort of, okay, what are the cues that signal when somebody is a taker? Now, a lot of givers fail to use this knowledge, and they, they're actually quite astute at recognizing, you know, who's generous and who's not, but, you know, they, they end up basically trusting all the people all the time instead of some of the people or most of the people most of the time. And, you know, I think if, if they were to use that fine-tuned knowledge of, of people's motives, they could protect themselves more. But as you talked about earlier in the broadcast, that, that you can go into, when you were talking about negotiation, for instance, you said you can go into it with the mindset, I'm going to be a giver, but if I determine that that's not going to serve me ultimately well, then I can make, I can make an adjustment. I, I, I suspect that same mentality applies to if you burn me once, but you're not going to take advantage of me again. You, you do have permission to shift and to protect the interest of yourself and your organization, yeah? That's right. I think that like anything else in life, flexibility is incredibly important. And anybody who operates in one style all of the time is asking for trouble because different situations and different interactions require different styles. The other thing I would say is, you know, back to the point about matchers. I think that, you know, a lot of times it's the matchers who will step up and protect the givers after they've been burned. One of, one of the givers in the book, again, the, the star of Chapter 2, whose name is Adam, he actually, when, when I went to observe him in action, I had three different people introduce themselves to me as Adam's guardian or Adam's protector. And they literally felt one of their missions in life was to make sure that no takers could waltz into his network and take advantage of his generosity. And, you know, I think that over time, the really successful givers among us attract that loyalty from matchers. All right. Let's talk about this concept from the, from the perspective of a guy in sales. And so he's got a marketplace of, of potential buyers, of prospects. I find that selling is a lot easier when you have a giver's mindset and you're sharing freely of knowledge and expertise and, and skill. But I, I find there's a lot of people that are afraid of being a, quote, giver when they're in the sales 
processed. Can you, can you talk about how you can be a giver and still be successful in sales? Sure. A couple of reactions on that. The, the first one is to say the book, The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John David Mann is a wonderful fable about how givers succeed in selling. And I, I think it actually anticipates a lot of the, the data that, that I and others gathered that, that appear in, in my book. So in Chapter 5 of Give and Take, I, I talk about this. And what first got me interested in it, actually, was that I worked in advertising sales for a couple of years before I, I got into the current organizational psychology field that I'm in. And you know, I, I really struggled at first because I felt like I, you know, a good salesperson was a taker, right? I was supposed to be you know, really manipulative and Machiavellian and, you know, just fool people into, into making purchases. And, you know, then I found over time, of course, that, that a lot of the salespeople who did that got a few sales in the short run and, you know, really burned bridges with their customers in the long run, losing their trust. And, you know, when I gathered a bunch of data on this with Dane Barnes, we found something very similar, which is that if you look at annual re- revenue, the givers actually bring in, on average, about 50% greater annual revenue than the takers and the matchers. There's some other research that I cover in the book suggesting that that doesn't happen right away, that that it really takes givers a little bit of time to build that trust and to get to know their customers. And I think the first thing you have to do if you want to be a giver in sales is recognize that you may not see an immediate payoff. And the second thing you have to realize is part of being a giver means asking questions and really getting to know your customers' needs and interests. And, you know, if you show a genuine concern for their well-being, you'll end up learning things that over time allow you to both help them and make your sales targets. And, you know, sometimes that takes a little while, but over time the givers do seem to win out in most sales jobs. Yeah, well, uh, you mentioned Bob Berg. He'll be on the show in a week's time. Uh, if there's one guy who is not a taker, it's Bob Berg. So I, pre- I appreciate you mentioning him. Bob, no, Bob, Bob is a giver extraordinaire. Yeah, no doubt. Adam, the philosophy you espouse in this book isn't just for individuals, right? I mean, this can have an impact on both organizations and communities too, yeah? That's right. I think that, you know, one of the things that's really interesting when you look at the research on what successful givers do is that oftentimes their behavior becomes contagious. And again, we can, we can understand this through the lens of matchers, which is that if, if you go and help somebody who's a matcher, they will want to pay it back. And a lot of givers will say, no, 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 you know, I, I was helping you because I, I wanted to be helpful or I cared. You know, I wasn't trying to get something in return, which is enormously frustrating if you're a matcher. <laughs> right? You, right. You, you feel like you know, there's, there's some cosmic debt that you're facing because you've been helped and you haven't been able to reciprocate. And a lot of matchers will find that the next best thing, if they can't pay it back, is to pay it forward and say, I'm going to go out of my way then to help somebody else in a similar manner. And then over time, you know, that can ripple and spread and cascade and create norms of giving in a whole community or a group or a network. Uh, it covers some of this research in Chapter 2 and Chapter 8, and I think it's really fascinating. All right, good stuff. Hey, final cheesy question. Is this concept, this idea, is this the secret to happiness? Oh, I love the cheesiness. <laughs> is, is it the secret to happiness? You know, I don't know. There are a lot of studies showing that giving makes people happy. Uh, there's a really neat book coming out next month called Happy Money by Liz Dunn and Michael Norton, showing actually that one of their, their findings is that people who spend money on others actually get more of a boost to their happiness, their joy, their positive moods than people who spend money on themselves. There are a lot of other studies that showing that you know there, there is this sense of what, what Daniel Batson calls empathic joy, you know the, the vicarious satisfaction from having helped others successfully. Uh, you know it's, it's really a really good feeling. You know some psychologists call it the helper's high. 
a lot of economists call it the warm glow of altruism. And, you know, I think that if, if you do it just to be happy, you're probably not going to help in ways that, that end yeah. up benefiting other people yeah. as much as if you do it to help them. And, you know, maybe know in the back of your mind that you might get some joy out of it. But I, I think in the long run, the, the evidence is pretty strong that it is a, a real key to meaning. Jennifer Ocker and her colleagues showed that if you look at the people who experience the greatest sense of meaning and purpose in their lives, they're those who feel that they've contributed to others. And it's a way of, of really feeling that their actions matter. So, you know, I think it's, it's a key, certainly, to a, a, high, a high sense of well-being and, and meaningful accomplishment. Right, which then ultimately manifests itself in success in business and life, too. So, great stuff. Well, Adam, I hate to say it, uh, but we're out of time. I don't want to keep you. Uh, before I let you go, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about your work, and where can they get their hands on Give and Take? Well, thank you for asking. If you go to the website, giveandtake.com, cleverly named. <laughs> we, we have a bunch of links to buy the book for, for anyone who's interested. It's available at all the usual suspects, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. There are a few resources on the site that may be interesting. One is a self-assessment so that you can actually fill out a survey and find out, do you think most often like a giver, a taker, or a matcher? Although having listened to this, uh, this discussion, you may now know too much. Uh, the second <laughs> tool is a 360 assessment where you can ask anybody you know to rate you anonymously and find out, do you see yourself? the way that they see you. And then the, the third tool that I'm really enjoying is a nominate a giver tool so that you can write a little paragraph about somebody you know who's been helpful and generous and try to recognize that person. We have voting available and we're going to recognize one giver on the site every week so that you know people whose, whose contributions often go unnoticed have a chance to, to really be appreciated. Outstanding. Well, we'll link up to those tools in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Grant, it was great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. All right. Well, that wraps this episode. On behalf of my guest, Adam Grant, the professor at Wharton and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. I'm Todd Schnick. We'll see you next time on Intrepid Radio.